Well, please join me back in Matthew chapter 5. We're continuing to walk through our Lord's Sermon on the Mount. And last time, we talked about murder and anger. So let me ask you, how's it gone this past week as you've applied this message to yourself that we saw last time, murder and anger? I trust that it was another week where you did not strike somebody down in cold blood. I'm trusting that hasn't been a problem for you in the past, but I hope it was another week of success there. But, but what about anger? Were you able to apply what we learned last time, that in a moment of anger, were you able to diagnose your anger? Was it righteous or was it petty and unrighteous? How did it go? And were you able to discipline your anger? When, when you felt it, were you able to keep from sinning by, by relying on the Holy Spirit, restraining yourself? Well, today as we go back into the Sermon on the Mount, we come right back into that same passage. And once again, Jesus is talking about anger but we're going to go a little further with it today, and we're going to see what he calls out in regard to insults, but also the need for reconciliation. Now, last time I asked you, what are the types of things that make you angry? And I gave you some possibilities, maybe a slow cashier, maybe bad traffic, maybe bad service. And then I even mentioned a bad haircut. And I brought that up on purpose because I have a story in mind. Now, this is all going to seem a bit ridiculous when you look at my head. And, and you'll have a hard time thinking, did he ever need a haircut? I did. There was a time in my life when I, like you, had to get regular haircuts. But I'm thinking about a particular time early in marriage. We're visiting Joy's family in Manassas, and uh, I needed a haircut. And I said to Joy's brother, I said, hey, where do you go for your haircuts? And he told me about this barber shop not far from the place, from the house. And so I went there. Well, except I meant to go there. First mistake is I went to the wrong place, not the place he talked about. So I go in, though, to the wrong barbershop, and then I find it crowded. The, the waiting area is crowded. There's a bench there, and a bunch of guys are waiting, and so I take my seat there. And here's what I noticed. There were two busy barbers in the two chairs here, but then there was an empty chair and a barber there eager for a customer. As I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, something's wrong here. I don't know this place. I don't know any of these guys. But why won't any of these guys waiting take the guy in the middle? While I'm figuring that out, the guy in the middle, his name was Wendell. He starts coming toward me. And I think, oh, no. And he said, do you want a haircut? What am I going to say to that? I got to say yes. And so, yes, come on. And there I go. Against all better judgment, I follow Wendell like a lamb going to slaughter to his chair. And I still remember Wendell. I know his last name. I'm not going to tell it just in case somehow somebody is obliquely related to Wendell. Man, he was scissor happy. He sat there and he was working the scissors, whether he was cutting hair and I just worked him the whole time. He'd look out the window he's working. Then he'd come at my head and then he'd go back to the window and he'd go back at it. And he was a fidgety guy. Well, it was over. I paid him a tip and paid him way too much for what I was normally paying for a haircut. And I get in the car and I, I took I took a view at the damage, and I thought, this was a bad job. This was a hack job back when I had hair. <laughs> this is a hack job. And the uh, hair's kind of stringing over my ears. He didn't, he didn't do it cleanly, and it was just bad. And, and, I, and I was already thinking the money was tight, and I thought, I paid a lot for this bad haircut. And I was just mad and drove the short drive back to Joy's family's house. And then I sucked everybody into my travesty. Joy's sweet mom, the sweetest woman I've ever known, Joy's mom. And she's, she's going to do what? What she's going to do, she's going to try to encourage me. But I didn't want her encouragement. She said, it doesn't look bad. It looks good. I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear that she agreed with the travesty that had been done to me. 
So I wasn't mean to her, but in my heart, I didn't like it. And then Joy comes in and she goes, hey, let's see what we can fix it. And she fixed it. Listen, it was embarrassing to, to be so mad about a dumb haircut. I think I would, I'd love to have that haircut today. That'd <laughs> be all right with me. Um, but to be that angry, to suck people in. And I wish I could tell you that was the last time I ever got angry. And that's the only day I blew my anger. I bet you can think about times in your life where, why was I even angry about that? And why did I stew about that? Why did I suck people into that? Listen, anger is a problem as we're going to see here again in our text. And we're not to belittle it. We're to forsake it. We're to repent of it. And so remember, we saw this, that Jesus brings up murder. You and I are to avoid the evils of murder. But likewise, we are to avoid the evil of ungodly anger. And now Jesus is going to remind us of a third dimension. We're to avoid the evil even of angry insults. So let's dive back into our text. Verse 20 is so key because it gives us the context of why Jesus brings it up. Verse 20, Matthew 5, 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That is quite a statement. Now he continues, verse 21. You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Just pause here. Jesus brings up heaven and who's not worthy of heaven. And he brings up hell here in the context of, of righteousness. We have to have a righteousness that none of us have. We have to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the very religious scribes and Pharisees. If we don't have a, a better righteousness than theirs, we're not going to heaven. And he brings up the things that would make us worthy of hell. And here, as we go deeper in this, he talks about some insults. There's some words Jesus uses here, and he says, you should never use these words in anger. The first one in the original language here is raka. It's an Aramaic word. Scholars say it was kind of a quasi-swear word in the time. The New American Standard that I'm reading from today uh, translates that word raka as you good for nothing. The ESV and CSB just translated insult, whoever insults. But it was a specific word, raka, that Jesus uses here, it would be like calling somebody empty head, you empty head. That's the type of insult that Jesus says, you can't, you can't do that. Then he uses another word here that we're not to use. It's the word fool, you fool, we can't do it. Now there are some synonyms of that word. That word carries the idea of idiocy. So to call somebody stupid would be the same thing as there. Now Jesus can call people fool. You and I can't. In fact, if you go deeper in the book of Matthew, Matthew 23, 17, you find Jesus rebuking the Pharisees. And Jesus can stand in righteous judgment of these hypocritical Pharisees, and he can use the word. He calls them blind guides and lots of other things, calls them fools in a very technical sense. He can do that, but he says, you can't do that. You can't elevate yourself above somebody and pronounce things like that on other people. You would be sinning if you were to do it. Now, I remember growing up being like a Pharisee with my avoidance of the word fool. Somehow in my Bible Belt upbringing, not Christian, not born again, but had that church familiarity, we knew as a group of peers, you don't ever call somebody fool. 
Somehow, we, we had some of this truth that came to us. You don't call somebody fools. Like, uh-uh, that, that is off limits if you're a good person. You don't call somebody fool. But here's, here's how I was like a Pharisee. We'd call anybody a synonym of fool and wouldn't blink about it. We, we somehow got real technical. Don't call them fool, but you can call them idiot all day long. Stupid, ignoramus, buffoon. Just anything we would do. It's not, it's not the way that Jesus intends us. He calls this sin... And notice, he calls it a serious sin. So he said, all right, all right, I'm not going to ever call anybody raka. Well, you don't even know that word. I that's Aramaic. We weren't going to use that word anyway. But, but would we insult people in another way similar just using our English words? So there are lots of insults out there. I, I found years ago a website where they have a Shakespearean insult kit. Like if you really want to take your insults up a notch, a little more sophisticated, and it's, it, they mean to be humorous, but they give these columns, and you can take an insult from column one, column two, column three, combine them together, and you can come out with a really classy insult. For instance, you could call somebody a bawdy, bat-fouling baggage or a beslubbering, beef-witted barnacle. You could just do that. And, now, that'd be all fine and good fun when you and the person receiving those words know this is just totally a joke. But in terms of insulting people with sincerity, out of anger, we can't do it. And this is a good word for us, very practical, because are we not in a political season? And I thought 2016 was the most intense political season ever, never to be matched, except for here we are in another one. And there's lots of concern, and the concern is right, and what direction will we go as a nation? And we're concerned about moral issues and all that. But how we engage is very different than how the world engages. So what role does insulting another person and name-calling what role does it have in the life of a believer? Jesus says, can have no part in your life. It's totally inappropriate behavior for a person of God. Has no part in your life. So our, our focus is in these things that distress us in this day. We focus on issues, not person. We, we focus on policy. So it's perfectly okay when you look at a policy being put forward and say, that is an evil policy. That's ungodly. You're talking about the issue, and there are a lot of ungodly issues and ungodly proposals put forward, and you can speak strongly against the policy. You can say, that is horrible, but we don't turn around and speak insults to anybody and not even those in authority. So the point is this, just as you control your hands when you're angry, that you not strike somebody down in murder, so likewise, Jesus expects us to control our mouths when we're angry. You and I are to control our hearts and our tongues. So don't trust your flesh when you're angry. Trust in Jesus when you're angry. Our flesh can like it when we strike at another person. You, you know this is true. That maybe when you were an unbeliever or maybe when you were younger in your faith, you enjoyed it. It just felt right. It felt good. I told them off and they deserved it. That, that's how you feel in your flesh. You might have even bragged about it. You got back with your friends. Man, you should have been there. I really laid into them. I told them off all these different ways. Or maybe in your anger, you become aware that you've hurt somebody and in your flesh, you think, good, good. They deserve it. After what they did to me, I, I hope I hurt them. I hope I hurt her. But listen, that's retaliation. That's being vengeful. That's off the table for a child of God. We're never to return evil for evil to anyone, the scripture says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. We don't step into that space. That's God's realm. So just as a murderer turns to a weapon to do damage to others, 
Uh, a person might be tempted to go to the tongue. I will obliterate them with my tongue. We're not allowed to do it. It is sin. And Jesus uses the strongest words here. It's serious sin. He brings up hell here. We're just reminding ourselves, don't think you're righteous if you've just avoided killing people. Well, I'm worthy of heaven because I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, actually, if you've been angry with a brother, you are worthy of judgment. And if you've ever insulted somebody like this, you're worthy of judgment. You're worthy of hell. It strips away this idea that I can think of myself as righteous apart from the grace of our Lord. So it's a sin to lash out with people with hateful insults. And sadly, we've done it before. And typically the people on the receiving end of these hateful statements are our spouses or our children, or if you're younger, your siblings or your friends. How many of you maybe can remember a hurtful statement somebody said to you and it was over a year ago? Maybe it was five years ago. Maybe it was back in your childhood and there's something that plays in your head from time to time. There's something somebody said to you. Maybe it was something your father or mother yelled at you. Or maybe it was a coach or a friend. They, maybe they called you stupid or they called you ugly or they called you a loser or a failure. Or maybe it wasn't just a one word insult. Maybe it was a phrase. You'll never amount to anything. You always get things wrong and that's just kind of stuck in your head. Or somebody even said to you, I hate you. Listen, those kind of things should never have been said to you. And those are the type of things that you and I should never say to somebody else. Jesus said it's off the table. It's not small. We can't belittle it. We can't excuse it. These are horrible things and they make us worthy of judgment, worthy of condemnation. Jesus even brings up, makes you worthy of hell. So you and I should take our words seriously because apparently our God takes our words very seriously. So, so how do we do this? How do we control our tongues? So far, most of us have been able to restrain ourselves from actually bringing somebody down and spilling their blood. But how do we control our heart? How do we control our mouths? And we come back to what we talked about last time. We must be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is the normal move of a Christian. It's what the Bible teaches us to do. Be filled with the Spirit, which means I'm totally emptied of me and I'm full of him. Another way of describing this, full surrender. It's, it's waking up in the morning and surrendering everything you know about yourself to Jesus. And then every hour you walk that walk, I'm in total surrender, total surrender. And when you find yourself back in charge or you're thinking in fleshly ways, you go, no, no, that's, that's not it. I repent again, Lord. I surrender myself again. Everything about me surrender. And then the fruit of the spirit is, is coming out of your life instead of the flesh. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, when you're full of the Spirit. And so in that, full of the Spirit, when we have those things that anger us, we then have the ability, we have self-control that the Spirit's given us to stick to the issue that's making us upset and not attack the other person. We can say, I disagree with you, and here are the reasons why I disagree with you. But we can't say, I disagree, and then call them a name to obliterate them. We can't say, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. How'd you get so stupid? We can't do that. We're to be fully yielded to Christ, which means our heart and mind yielded, and our mouth should be full of praise. Our mouth should be full of thanksgiving. Our mouth should be full of worship. 
for using our mouths, it be for sharing the gospel with others, building people up. And when we disagree with somebody, should we not speak the truth in love? Think of it this way. What have you accomplished if you win every argument in your life going nuclear with the insults and the name calling, and then you lose every relationship in your life? What if a guy said, I have won every argument in my house, and his wife leaves him because he's just a belligerent, angry man? Or what if a man said or a woman said, I have complete dominance in my household. My children are terrified of me because of the way I've torn them down. And yeah, you've got control, but your children may have no respect for you. And when they can get away, they may, in fact, get away. What have you gained if you win your arguments like this and you lose all your relationships? Your, use your words to calm, to heal, to teach, and to build up. Ephesians 4.29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Proverbs 15, one through four, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of, of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. So we've seen here that we are to avoid the evil of angry insults. And now I want you to see that the Lord calls us now to prioritize reconciliation. Jesus isn't just saying, stop being angry and stop being abusive. But he says, go beyond that. And you need to reconcile with people who have something against you. We're going to see here in our text that reconciliation is essential even for our worship. Verse 23, therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. Notice he's not saying that if you get to a time of worship and you remember that you have something against somebody else, go deal with it. He says, no, you come to worship and you realize, wait a minute, I'm not right with somebody. I think they may have something against me. There's something I've done. I have not yet attempted to make it right. I haven't asked for forgiveness. I haven't tried to reconcile. I need to do that first. Now notice the standard. It's the same standard we have throughout the scripture. I love Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. It doesn't mean you're always gonna have great relationship with everybody, but it should be noted that you've tried and you are trying to be on good terms with everybody so far it depends on you. Make peace because your worship depends on it. See how important it is. Jesus leave your offering, go make it right, then come back. Relationships matter to God, not just the vertical with us and God, but the horizontal, our relationships with other people. Another example of this is 1 Peter 3, 7, a word to husbands. You husbands in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way as with someone weaker since she is a woman and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Did you hear that? The way you treat your wife can impact your worship. It impacts your prayer life. Your relationships matter. So let me pause here. Has God brought somebody into your mind 
that you need to seek reconciliation with? Is there somebody that, that you've wronged and up to now you've not sought to apologize, to ask forgiveness, and to, to have some level of reconciliation? Again, it may be a spouse, maybe a child, maybe a former spouse, maybe a friend or a, another church member. Somebody has something against you. You're, you're thinking of it and you haven't tried to reconcile. Listen, God is more interested in seeking healing in that relationship than church attendance or the songs that we just sang or an offering that you have given or maybe an upcoming mission trip. I think I'm gonna take that trip when there's this, when there's this issue he's brought to your mind. There's somebody has something against you because of something you've done and you haven't sought to make it right. Notice here, Jesus says, leave your offering, go fix that and then come back. If you think about this, just think about how extreme that is. Here's Jesus teaching up in Galilee. It's 70 miles from the temple in Jerusalem. So just imagine if these folks are applying this message as you and I are applying and they're thinking, wait a minute, I live in Galilee. When I go to Jerusalem, it's a 70 mile journey. It's a pretty big deal when I go to make an offering there. But if I get there on the 70 mile journey and I realize, oh, I'm, I'm at odds with somebody and I haven't attempted to make it right, it's pretty extreme. I, I mean, I can't, I can't follow through here. It would please Jesus if I were to go home, make the 70 mile journey back, let's get things back. As far as it depends on me, I'm gonna try to apologize and make amends for what I've done to this brother or sister that I've wounded. Once I've made that effort, a sincere effort, then I can go back and it would please God that I follow through with the offering. You see, you hear how serious this is to God. This is important. First reconciliation, then worship. Just a little pause here. Uh, that conversation may not always go well. So what if you do? I'm going to take Jesus at his word here. I want to make my relationships right. You go to somebody that you wronged and they don't handle it well. That, that really well could happen. They might handle it great. Like it could be so healing and soothing that they see the difference Jesus has made in your life that you in obedience to him want to make it right but that person might not be ready to forgive you. That, might, that person might wonder, what's your angle? Why, why are you bringing this up? What are you up to now? Are you trying to hurt me again? And you just have to co go in patiently, full of grace, intending ahead of time, I'm, I'm not gonna strike back. I deserve it if they, if they come at me hard. I'm not, I'm not going to add to the sin there. So attempting reconciliation is essential for worship according to Jesus. And then this, reconciliation is for your own benefit. It's simply wise, look at verse 25. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. So just as we're to seek reconciliation before we enter the sanctuary to worship, Jesus said, seek reconciliation before you enter the court of law. And by the way, this should be our new nature as the children of God anyway. Didn't we read earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in the Beatitudes that we are to be peacemakers? This is our new nature. We're to be those who seek reconciliation. We have a ministry of helping people be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, here it is, the ministry of of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. It would be difficult to carry out a ministry of reconciliation if we leave behind us a string of broken relationships that we haven't cared to try to mend 
through asking forgiveness and trying to bring about peace. Relationships are important to us. Again, see again Jesus' point. He's, his point is this. You've heard that it's been said you shouldn't murder, but don't count yourself righteous if you've just technically kept that when you're full of anger, full of bitterness, full of abusive language from your mouth. Your heart and your mouth, the righteousness of Christ needs to be showing up there as well. It's a high standard, isn't it? And it exposes all of us as sinners who need Jesus. And aren't you glad for Jesus? Years ago at a conference, I got to hear Tom Eliff speak. And he talked about a topic similar to this. And he talked about how you could hurt people in your life with your words. And he, he is a dad became concerned about that. I thought, wonder if any of my children are carrying around wounds from something I said and, and I don't know it. And so he told about how he sat down each of his kids. I think they were all at least teenagers, maybe young adults by the time he did this, but he, he just sat them down one by one when he saw them again and said, hey, at any time as I was raising you, any time in life, did I, ever, did I ever hurt you with something? Is there something still playing out in your mind, in your heart? That, that I said to you, and, uh, and he told how it went with each of those things. I think that's wise, isn't it? It's a little bit scary, isn't it? You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask my kids to tell me, is there some way I've wounded you? Is there some statement that still stings you? I think that's a wise move to make. So let's examine our hearts this morning. In light of this commandment, you shall not murder. But let's take it to the full extent that Jesus did. And here, here's, what we, here's what we come to. None of us are innocent. None of us righteous, none of us worthy of heaven. So we ask the question, where am I going to get a righteousness that makes me worthy of heaven? Where am I going to get a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees? It's Jesus. It's through humbly recognizing I've sinned in more ways than I realized. That may be you today. I didn't even realize the way I talked was such a big deal. But now you see it. Don't belittle it. Now what do you do? You, you turn from that and you run to Jesus, the one who can make you clean from any sin. This should make you and me delight in him even more. Jesus, I come confessing how I've used my mouth. I've, I come confessing the darkness that's been in my heart in ways I hadn't even acknowledged before. And I'm coming to you, Lord. You're the one who can make me clean. Jesus, you died on a cross for my sin. You were raised from the dead. All my hope is in you, the one who can cleanse me from the inside out. You're the one who can give me the gift that I don't deserve, the gift of everlasting life. Jesus, I'm, I'm coming to you. Would you make that move to Jesus today? And then, Christian, would you take that other step? If there is a broken relationship in your life that you haven't tried to mend, would you, in the power of God and the wisdom of God, would you go this week and try to make it right? Let's pray together.